0: I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the 8th chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 8. It has been a full day, a busy day, fourth ministry of the day, having Sunday school morning worship and then ministering at the nursing home. And uh, we come this evening to this portion of Jeremiah that I'm going to read to you and endeavor to uh, make some sense of. There's a sense. There's uh, clearly in my mind. I've 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 sort of attempted to streamline this message. There's no that's no guarantee it's going to be any shorter, but (laughs) just for the sake of my own well-being and being able to communicate the truth with some measure of clarity, I felt I just had to sort of streamline it a bit. Um, And we sang that your word is like a garden and a treasury and an armory and. And all of that and you know, those are all wonderful images that depict aspects of the word of God uh, but it's also true that the word of God is not easy the word of God is oftentimes difficult and complicated um, it's profitable but that doesn't mean its meaning, it becomes clear instantly and immediately. In this passage I'm going to read to you this evening, there are lots of problems. Problems in just understanding the translation, how the words from the Hebrew should be rendered in the the English. There's lots of difficulties along those lines, just in terms of how the grammar is laid out. Uh, So there are some measures of uncertainty. Uh, I think that, uh, at least in my Bible, there's a couple of places where it says the meaning of the Hebrew word is uncertain. And then it says to compare the Septuagint. Well, we're not going to do that this evening, the Greek translation. Uh, But it says the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. So go to the Septuagint, and maybe they'll shed some light on it, I guess is what they're saying. And so at least in two places, the uh, translation points out that this is uncertain and you go back to the original you find there's even a lot of other things that are a bit of a muddle and I'm going to try to uh, at least uh, give the benefit of the doubt to our English translation that it perhaps is at least 75 or 80% accurate and uh, just endeavor to uh, deal with the complexities just from the vantage point that we have somewhat of a, a trustworthy English translation but I'm also going to go back to the Hebrew for the purposes of certain uh, nuances that hopefully we'll glean uh, as we move along. Um, but one of the problems of understanding God's word is not just that there are translational difficulties, which there are, and interpretive difficulties, which there uh, there are, um, but also we're, we're trafficking in the truth of God. We're trafficking in the truth of God. Uh, an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable being whose uh, ways are far above our ways and uh, past searching out. And uh, in the words that he speaks to us, he speaks in the language of men. And sometimes that uh, divine speaking in the language of men... Um, it becomes uh, a bit complicated. Uh, just what is it that is uh, being communicated to us, to uh, poor mortals in the midst of our own insufficient understandings from this great God of heaven and earth who would make his, his, his will and his ways known? Some of it is complicated. Just because God is who he is and we are who we are. And we don't know how we're going to reconcile aspects of truth that speak of a sovereign God who yet works in the world in which human beings are responsible, Um, we don't know how to put all that together. We don't know how to put together the trinity of God, the threeness of God, with the unity of God, that God is one God. We don't know how to put together the reality of the incarnation that uh, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself in terms of a true incarnation that the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that our Lord Jesus is both God and man in one person. How does deity and humanity coexist in one person? It just boggles our minds and it's way past our figuring out. And so in this passage, we're going to see aspects of God's nature and character that in one sense, we say, well, that's clear. God is a God of wrath. He's furious with the crimes of, this, of Israel, of Judah. It's appalling, the things that they have done. How can he not judge them for these things and still be God? Yet, on the other hand, the fact that this God does not judge in, in, in easily, doesn't judge in malice, doesn't judge, um, or as says in Jeremiah in the Lamentations, he doesn't, he doesn't afflict from the heart. He doesn't afflict willingly. It's almost against his will that he brings this judgment, because it's to his people that he brings this judgment. The object of his love, the object of his investiture of of, of time and and, and well, generations of dealings with this people. And you think of how in Hosea he says, How shall I give you up, O Ephraim? I mean, you're you're my people. You're the objects of my compassion and love. And though there's one sense he asked the question, how can he not give them up? How can he not judge them and be true, true to his words? the curses of the covenant, the things that he said he would do if his people did not walk in his ways and walked in the ways of the nations. How could he ever reconcile the fact he would judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins and judge the Canaanites for their sins and not judge Judah and Israel for their sins? But on the other hand, that's not easy. I mean, to us that would be simple. Just judge them. Just judge them. They deserve this judgment that you would bring. And God says, I love them. God says that the objects of my compassion we don't know how to put those things together because we think compassion rules out judgment and judgment rules out compassion but yet in the heart of God they meet i think they meet probably somewhere in the reality of a god who is a jealous god in some ways but in some ways it just meets in his own person and in his own character but we're given a revelation where both of these things coexist and so there's troubles and problems and complications and really understanding God's word but we don't give up we press on and we endeavor to make sense of the things that God has made known even when some of it just simply seems to elude us and just be above us and beyond us and greater than us we look to submit to its wisdom and submit to its authority and embrace what we can glean and what we can understand and look to hold truths that seem polar opposites we look to hold them both in tension And not give up on one for the sake of the other, but hold fast the whole counsel of God's own holy word. Well, I'm going to read in your hearing, chapter 8, verse 13. I'm going to read down to verse uh, 21. I was going to go into chapter 9 and uh, verse 3, but this is one of the ways I've kind of streamlined it for this evening. And I want you to note that as we read this, you'll see that there are different speakers. There's different people represented as speaking, and that's how really I'm going to um, treat it this evening. My basic division is to look at what God says, he speaks, look at what the people say, they speak, and look at what Jeremiah says, he speaks. So we'll begin with what God says in the words of verse 13. He says, when I would gather them, declares Yahweh, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and, when I gave them, what, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Now the people speak, Why do we sit still? Gather together. Again, verse 13 God speaks about gathering, they speak about gathering. Why do we sit still? Gather together. Let us go into the fortress, to the fortified cities, and perish there. For Yahweh our God has doomed us to perish. And has given us poisoned water to drink, because we have sinned against Yahweh. We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. The sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and all who dwell dwell in it. And we're back here to Yahweh speaking, the speaking of of the Lord. Verse 16 and 17 For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares Yahweh Now Jeremiah speaks And he speaks for God and maybe a sense in which he's reflecting something of the heart of God but uh, I think they're Jeremiah's own sentiments My joy Is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? and it's hard to know who's speaking there whether it's Yahweh or whether it's Jeremiah whether it's Jeremiah speaking on behalf of Yahweh or Jeremiah entering into the concerns of Yahweh God's been provoked to anger but yet the prophet's been provoked to anger as well by their evil deeds and their idolatrous activities their carved images and their foreign idols the harvest is past the summer is ended and we are not saved And here again is the people probably speaking these words for the wound of the daughter of my people. Is my heart wounded? I think we're back to Jeremiah there. So you see, there's many voices. It's that polyphony we spoke about. Many voices: the voice of the Lord, the voice of the people, the voice of the prophet, all intermingling in this um, uh, in this uh, section. And so it's hard to always discern whose voice it is that we're hearing. But let's try to be sensitive to the things that are being said. For the wound of the, the daughter of my people, verse 21, is my heart wounded? I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me as I tried to think of how I would put all this together I did give you the sense of the outline of what it's going to be the speaking of God, the speaking of the people, the speaking of the prophet Um, but also in terms of understanding the differences in let's say the temperature of uh, moving from wrath and judgment and provocation uh, on the one hand and compassion and concern and identification with the people. Uh, I read a, a statement. I'm going to read it to you. It's by a, a, a Jewish writer. His name is Robert Alter. And he says there's a certain oscillation. You know what an oscillation is. you got those oscillating fans that go back and forth, back and forth. So there's a certain going back and forth in Jeremiah between angry denunciation of his fellow Judahites for their appalling acts and compassion and identification with them as they suffer the consequences of these acts. So we're going back and forth between angry denunciations and compassion and identification with the people for the very sins that brings the denunciations. There is also the bringing of concern for them and the consequences that those acts will bring upon their heads. And it begins in verse 13, this section, and it begins with a rather interesting statement that in the Hebrew um, is one of those things I mentioned, uh, uh, was it last week I mentioned that sometimes in Hebrew you have the repetition of verbs. Well, here you have a repetition, not of exactly the same word, but it's a, a, a different word with a similar sound. Uh, you read it in the, in the Hebrew, it, it sounds the same, and yet the words are not the same. And yet there is a placing of them together in such a way that it would say something like this. It would say, Gathering them, I will end them. Gathering them, I will end them. That seems like a contradiction right there. How can God gather a people for whom he has purposed their end? I will end them, and yet I will gather them. And right there, there is that seeming contradiction. There is that polarity of concerns. God would gather them, and yet the people have made it impossible that this gathering should ever take place. And because of their intransigence, because of their unfruitfulness, because of their sinfulness, the God who would gather them will bring their end upon them. It's almost like what Jesus says. It sort of, Jesus echoes this in his words in Matthew chapter 23, when he says, I would have gathered you. As a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing. And therefore the judgment comes upon them to the uttermost. God leaves their house to be desolate because of their intransigence. God was willing to gather them. God was willing to take them up in his arms. God was willing to care for them and to protect them. To make certain that no harm came to them. But they were not willing. And therefore their end is desolation. Their end is judgment. Their end is an end itself, that God will bring an end to them. Gathering them, I will end them. Again, divine compassion that will not let his people go, and yet the obstinacy an intransigence of a sinful people that will not under any circumstance submit to the living God. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, I took notice of what in the world I was gathering. I was gathering a people without fruit. No grapes on the vine. No figs on the fig tree. That's the picture of curse that comes upon the land. When the fig tree does not ripen with figs and the vineyard does not glean forth with grapes, there's conditions of drought perhaps or conditions of pestilence that has come upon the land. God has cursed the land. Jesus cursed the fig tree because he went up to it and saw that there were no figs. There was no fruit that was being born. And it was was a picture of of the unfruitfulness of the nation who came under the curse of God for that simple reason that there was no fruit. This was the vineyard of the Lord's planting. He planted the vineyard according to Isaiah chapter 5. And he dug around and he put in all things that were necessary to make certain that there would be good grapes. And he looked and he found no grapes or foul grapes or grapes that were unfit for anything. They were unfruitful. And even their leaves, he says, are withered. The exact opposite is Psalm 1. Where the picture of the people of God is something of a, a restored garden. Where their leaf will not wither. And the, they, will gather, they will bear fruit in their season. And whatever they do will prosper. There is a withering of the leaves. And then God says, What I gave them... Has passed away from them. And again, when you think of it, what God's speaking of here it seems to be these agricultural terms grapes and figs and leaves. What did God give them? Well, He gave them a land, a land that would prosper, a land that was their inheritance, a land that was a garden to be restored, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And what I gave them has passed away from them. They're going to forfeit the land, they're going to forfeit their rights to retain their homes, to retain their fields, to retain all the goodness of God and His blessings to them that they've simply squandered His gifts. They've squandered God's blessings. That's how God speaks. He speaks with notes of one hand, tender compassion. And you know, the other hand, the reality of their rebellion and their intransigence their unfruitfulness the squandering of his blessings that will bring his judgment to fall upon them compassion notwithstanding and now the people the people speak beginning in verse 14 this people the squandered divine blessings this people that proved unfruitful this people that would not repent and they were intransigent and It's hard to say exactly what this representation of their own statements means. Is it something that actually they're pondering in their own hearts? Or is it something that Jeremiah is saying, this is likely what they should be saying to themselves. This is exactly what they should be considering. Because again, this was a people that were deceived, and they were deluded. They were looking for peace when there would be no peace. There were all these false prophets that were coming around and selling them a bill of goods that were directly contrary to the things that God said He will do. And they were content to just let it it be. You know, the prophets prophesy falsely. The priests bear rule by their means. In chapter 5, he says, And my people, delight to have it so. They're not looking to reject these false prophets. They're not looking to receive Jeremiah's words. And yet if they did receive Jeremiah's words, they wouldn't be doing what they're presently doing. Why do we sit still? still? I mean, we're we're facing the jeopardy of the Babylonian invasion. And we're doing nothing. We're just sitting still. And so as God would gather them together, they're really to be counseling themselves to gather themselves together. To gather themselves together and flee to a place of safety. Well, the only true place of safety is the Lord. But they're not willing. They're not willing to go to the Lord. So, at best, they would go to their fortified cities. At best, they would go to the places where at least they weren't exposed, at least initially, to the onslaught of the Babylonians when they came and began to devastate the land. They would go to the fortified cities that were cities that were protected by walls and by uh, fortifications uh, at least to provide something of a defense you get it best as they go to their fortified cities it's to that place they will go to perish they won't go to survive they won't go to live one, one of two options you can be taken away into captivity or you're going to die you're going to perish when the Babylonian invasions comes You're not going to survive this thing. And then they're given to say, or Jeremiah imputes to their words, that Yahweh our God has doomed us to perish. He's given us poisoned water to drink. That gets repeated in chapter 14, this matter of the poisoned water, in a context very similar to this, when they looked for peace, but no good came in verse 15. A time of healing, but behold, terror. And again, the only reason they would even think to look for peace, the only reason they would think that good would come, is that the words of the false prophets are still being given credence. These people are not abandoning these false teachers even as the hooves of Babylonian horses are desounding in in their ears and, and, and causing the land to tremble and the land to quake. That's verse 16. They're still looking for peace. They're still looking for some good thing to eventuate. Even when God says judgment is in the offing. They're looking for healing. But they're not getting what they're looking for. They're going to get warfare. They're going to look for evil that will come. They're going to look for healing. But the terror is is in their future that's what's coming there's a sense in which I think Jeremiah imputing these words to them evidences something of his own compassion towards these people you ought to be doing something other than what you're doing guys you ought to not be sitting still you got to know that danger is coming. you got to be, get the blinders off of your eyes. Get the deception away from your, your thoughts. The Lord is bringing judgment. And it's not a fiction, it's not an unreality, it's not a dream. So the picture is given in verse 16 and 17 of the way in which the earth. Babylonian cavalry are coming. They're coming on their horses. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. Dan is the northernmost extremity of of the north. They come into the land. They come first to the tribe of Dan. Dan's inheritance. And down in Judah, you can hear the snorting of their horses. The cavalry is coming. The sound of the neighing of their stallions. a very poetic way of seeing the nearness of this judgment it's still in the north but it's coming you're living in the south but you're not going to be protected this judgment's coming upon you and it's coming quickly the whole land quakes and not only do you hear the voice of the horses snorting and the neighing of the stallions but you hear the hoofs of the horses beating on the ground as the land quakes the nearness of this invasion is coming Jeremiah says they come. They devour the land and all that fills it. There's no resistance that's going to be met. There's no tribes to the north that are going to be protecting the people from the south. When the Assyrian invasion came, there were all those cities to the north populated with people that had to be taken first. Jerusalem was the last place There were fortified cities even in the south before they ever got to Jerusalem. Sennacherib took Lachish before he came to Jerusalem, but yet now there's nothing in their in their way. No armies to the north are going to give any sort of resistance. No alliances from any other country that's going to stop the stampeding horses of the Babylonian cavalry from coming and devouring the land and the cities and those that dwell in it. And God says, in addition to what the Babylonians are doing, I'm going to send among you my own judgments, my own curse. And it's going to be the form of serpents. Remember the fiery serpents of Numbers 21 that stung and bit the people. Um, These adders, he says, cannot be charmed. They're going to bite you. Again, I don't know that history tells us, of, I mean, other histories, history of the Babylonians of serpents that came among the people, or whether this is meant to be metaphoric in some way, but they're going to be stung. The judgments of God will come upon them. Serpent-like bites they will endure. And there's no averting it. There's no snake charmer that's going to ward them off, keep them away. This is God's judgment that he is sending and there's simply no way of averting it. I mean, I shouldn't say there's no way of averting it. Repentance would have averted it. But these people don't have a heart for repentance. These people are not going to bring forth any fruits of righteousness. The judgment is certain because the desert of judgment is in place and it's not removed so God has spoken he's spoken of his compassion as well as his judgment the people have spoken at least in terms of what they should be saying what they should be doing but yet there's no averting this judgment that will befall them and now Jeremiah comes and he chimes in his own voice. This is really the first of the many sections that follow in which there's genuine lament on the part of Jeremiah. A genuine complaint that comes forth from the soul of God's prophet that speaks of how all of this is impacting him as a man, as a servant of God. And you might think, well, he's God's servant. He's bringing God's word. So man up. People deserve what's coming, and so God's going to bring it and just wait till it passes. But Jeremiah is not so calloused. He's not indifferent. He is a Judahite himself. He's part of this nation. And he identifies with them. He has compassion towards them. And his own expression of complaint is voiced in this way. He says, My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. Now, there's a sense in which That's not absolute. I don't believe it ever could be said that Jeremiah's joy was gone so that there was no source of joy. There was no place of calm repose. There was no place of delight. There was delight in God. But I think he's thinking about these circumstances that are coming a joy that he could have in his nation, a joy that he could have in the inheritance, the joy he could have in the good and prosperity of God's blessing upon this nation, that's not in place any longer. Now he speaks of the fact that he found God's word, and he consumed it, he ate it, and God's word became to him the joy and rejoicing of his heart in chapter 20. There's a joy that's impervious to the conditions of life that we are we are exposed to there's a joy in the midst of grief there's a joy in the midst of sorrow there's a joy that comes to the people of God at the worst of all times and in the worst of all situations Jesus mentioned it in the passage we saw this morning rejoice and be exceedingly glad in the face of persecution rejoice and be exceedingly glad for there are considerations to the believer that inspires that joy Great is your reward in heaven. So persecuted they the prophets that were before you. So there's always reasons for joy to be present in the hearts of God's people. But there should be a joy in the good of Zion. There should be a joy in the prosperity of God's city. There should be a joy in the reality of the presence of God in Jerusalem. His worship, His people, honoring Him, serving Him, pleasing him there should be that joy that David spoke of in the psalm when he pondered and recalled how he led the throng in worship led them to the house of God with joy, the note of joy and rejoicing being prominent in the way the people of God met in the city of God, at the temple of God for the worship of God God was bringing the Babylonian armies to simply destroy all that the temple would be gone the city would be in flames the people would be taken into captivity and multitudes would be massacred and in the face of that Jeremiah says no joy to be found there yes joy in God yes joy in his word yes joy in the hope of glory joy in so many considerations of God's word and promises to his people but yet in the present situation and condition you just look at it and your heart is filled with the tragedy of it all and you're not exempted from feeling that you're not to say well because I'm a child of God and I see this judgment that's come from God that I have nothing in the way of a broken heart there is a breaking of the heart of the prophet my heart is sick within me behold the cry of the daughter of my people they are my people they're described as the daughter of my people how would you view a daughter? That's a dear child, isn't it? That's the child of your heart that you're looking to protect. A father looks to protect his daughter. The people were dear in the eyes of God, and they were dear in the eyes of God's prophet. And this should never have taken place if only the people had been remained obedient and faithful. And yet from the length and breadth of the land there's an outcry. The daughter of my people crying out that the judgment has come upon them. The moans and the groans and the tears and the wailing. The mourning of the, of the dead and the dying. of being taken away from homes and, and lands and taken away into captivity. From the length and breadth of the land the cry goes forth. Now could Jeremiah look upon that with anything other than grief and heartsickness. Is the Lord not in Zion? It's hard to know who's raising that question. Maybe Jeremiah, maybe the people. Is there a king not in her? Well, he should be. And he would be if the people were not idolaters. The answer is, why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images And with their foreign idols. If God has abandoned the temple, it's because of the idolatry of the people. If God has abandoned his people and his city, it's because the people have forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. They've come to serve foreign gods, they've come to bow before foreign idols. And it's not as if this was just something of just a brief, momentary apostasy. This was an apostasy of a long-standing duration. The harvest is past; we ought to have gleaned the harvest fields and brought in the ripened fruit. The summer is ended; seasons move into seasons, and we are not saved. I know preachers have preached on that in terms of great salvation messages, and they've been stirring and they've been edifying. But yet it's not at all what Jeremiah is talking about. He's not talking about the salvation that Jesus comes to bring. He's talking about the fact that this is a nation doomed to destruction and no rescue is forthcoming. Season follows season. There's been no repentance. Season has followed season. There's been no turning away from the idols. There will be no rescue. For the wound of the daughter of my people Jeremiah says, My heart is wounded. I mourn, and dismay is taking hold on me. Well, that's what the passage seems to be saying. And in the sense, you could say it's all in a muddle. There's notes of compassion on God's part, on the prophet's part, yet there's also notes. Of the sternness of divine judgment that comes upon God's people for their sins, there is in fact this oscillation, this going back and forth between angry denunciations against the sins of the people, for their appalling acts, and still compassion, still identification with them as they suffer the consequence of their acts and my question to you my question to myself is this do we know anything of that kind of oscillation do we ourselves know anything of both of these things present in our hearts because my thought is we tend to hold to one at the expense of the other a lot of us are pretty good at engaging in denunciatory anger We look at the sins of the culture. We look at the sins of the church. We look at idolatry. We look at apostasy. We look at all of the things that bring heartbreak to our souls. And it's easy to begin to simply denounce angrily. What are these people doing? Are they mad? Are they crazy? Are they out of their minds? How horrific. How terrible. And we go to town on denunciatory anger. And I'm not saying don't denounce it. I'm not saying don't be angry in the face of it. But don't do it without compassionate identification with those who will suffer the consequences of these actions. That has to be present too. You can't have one at the expense of the other. On the other hand, there are people that excel The compassionate identification with the people in their sins, and will never speak a word of denunciatory anger. They will never lift up their voice and say, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute; these are the very sins for which these troubles have come upon us." And our best path is the path of repentance from our idolatry. They won't talk in terms of idolatry. They will just talk about in terms of compassion. They're there, how terrible it is. We all suffer in these ways and we all suffer together without calling people to repentance in the face of these sins. I'm saying both of them need to be present. We're not reflecting the heart of God, we're not reflecting the best impulses within his prophets if we just use, if we, if we just feel one thing at the expense of the other or without the other both need to be present. And it's not hard. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy to identify with the people really and truly, compassionately, and not raise up the voice of angry denunciation. These things ought not to be. But then it's not easy once we say, these things ought not to be. It's not easy not to forsake compassion and identification. There's an old story that told you this before, but I'll, I'll tell you again, of um, Horatius Boner, the writer of the hymns, a Scottish preacher in the 19th century. He encountered Robert Murray McShane. And uh, I don't know if it was a ministerial meeting or some other place, but um, McShane asked him, what did you preach on last Lord's Day? and he said he preached from the Psalms he preached from the verse I think it's Psalm 9 or 10 where it says the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God and McShane hearing that text asked Bonar were you able to preach it without bitterness were you able to preach it without bitterness because he knew the tendency of the human heart He knew the tendency when we declare the judgments of God, the reality of the wrath of God, the anger of God, the just judgment of God, not to become angry in a carnal, sinful way, holding bitterness in our hearts, saying to people, you will be cast into hell, all the nations that forget God, and you deserve it, every bit of it, for all eternity. that's a bitter preaching of the doctrine of hell Paul writes in one of his letters of those of whom he tells he tells them as he told them with weeping with weeping he says they're enemies of the cross of Christ their God is their belly their end is destruction now he doesn't withhold the denunciations he says their God is their belly He says, their end is destruction. And he says, I've told you about them, and I'll tell you about them now with tears in my eyes. With tears in my eyes. Holding in his heart the deepest measure of compassion to even those who are so deluded, so blinded by their sins, so indifferent to their own peril, their own destruction. I can't look upon that and not cry I can't look upon that without my spirit being stirred within me tears of water flow down my eyes the psalmist says because they do not keep your commandments the tears of of water flow down my eyes I weep they don't weep for themselves but I weep for them They don't have compassion for their own souls, but I have compassion for them. And I'm saying we're reflecting the heart of God in that respect. Because somehow in God, there does exist both the reality when I would gather them. I don't ignore their sins I will end them I will end them I will bring the judgment of my wrath upon them but I won't do it bitterly I won't do it out of spite I won't do it from the heart I will do it because justice requires it and God would not be God not to judge a nation who has sinned in this way But yet he says how can I give you up how can I relinquish you you are my people and it's with the sense of the depth of his own sense it should not have happened this never should have been how tragic this compassion in the heart of God had a brilliant thought in my head but I, it, it's, it's, it was there for a minute and now it's gone that just means the day's been long but I hope at least this uh, again you're not going to resolve all the difficult you're not going to resolve all the difficulties of, of a difficult passage but if we can breathe something of the reality that in God there is reconciled both the deepest compassion and love to sinners even when judgment is their, is their final end both wrath and compassion they're in the heart of God they need to be in our hearts they need to have be, there's something in our own horizon that needs to see the world in which we live through those lenses to be able ourselves to engage in denunciation of transgression and sin and yet to speak it forth in compassion and love because we're not made of different stuff than the people of this world that will be, this, that will be caught up in the judgments that will come in one sense there are people and they should be dear to us and if they don't pray for themselves we should pray for them and if they don't have a concern for themselves we should have concern for them and if they will not weep for themselves we should weep for them that's what Jeremiah did as a prophet to the nation. That which seems to be what we should be doing in our own attempts to be impacting in some fashion our own culture for the gospel. That both the goodness and the severity of God needs to be in us, demonstrated by us, communicated to others in something of at least equal levels and not just one predominating to the exclusion of the other. So you get my point. I hope you do. hope we take it to heart. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that throughout the busyness of this day you've been with us and you've been our helper. I pray that something of the burden of my heart that I've communicated to your people, something I believe of Jeremiah's burden and the burden of your own heart, has been communicated adequately this evening and where we take this exhortation to heart again we're thankful for the blessings of another Lord's Day pray that you'd be with us throughout the coming week that whatever we would do we would do it to your honor, your praise and your glory we would know your presence we would know your goodness we would be seeking you daily we would be meditating upon your word regularly and we would be exalting in the goodness of our God whatever circumstances or conditions of life you call us to experience. So we pray that you'd hear our prayers, you'd bless your people, and you'd go with us as we go leave one another, as we, uh, and that we would take with us something of the, of the sanctity and the holiness, the blessings of another Lord's Day, as we'd come and we ask for these mercies, in Jesus' name, Amen.